Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Joining me tonight is our elite regular panelist, Bruce Garrick, and he is now the EIC of Wargamespace.com. Yes, hello gamers, and welcome to Wargame Space. Rumsfeld. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so tonight, I think we're kind of bringing the, uh, you know, Bruce and I have been working on a little project, the Winter of Wargaming, and maybe that's turned into a bit of a long, hard Russian winter of Wargaming, given <laughs> that it's now May, mm. uh, and you might be listening to this in June, uh, given how recording schedules work out. Nonetheless, we're, we're going to be kind of winding that down. We're also going to be, uh, you know, sort of taking a broader view today and having a bit of an unbounded discussion of uh, Wargaming and, and more generally strategy gaming and game design, and to help us do that, we are joined by senior game designer at Firaxis, Ananda Gupta. Hi guys, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming back. It's fantastic to uh, to get you back so quickly. Uh, well, you know, you guys. Whenever I hear unbounded discussion, that uh, that that that's that's a good sell for me to come. Yeah, that's it. That's a <clears throat> that's our goal here today is to is to unboundedly discuss uh, <laughs> a lot of things. But uh, I, I kind of wanted to, to get you involved in this because I know last time you were on, we did sort of touch a little bit on a whole bunch of a whole bunch of games that uh, we sort of both remembered uh and as we were doing this whole thing about you know the winter of wargaming and what kind of games uh we play and how they represent various things i just it got me thinking about how amazing gaming is right now i mean compared to what i grew up with i mean it's no contest just the the the, the variety of games, the depth of games, the, the breadth of games, it's, it's crazy. I mean, I, I don't know what else to say, how else to describe it. Yeah, it's interesting. You mentioned the breadth of games. I, um, so working in, in electronic gaming, I, I often buy board games purely for research purposes and for, mm. complete, and for completeness purposes, just to sort of see creative mechanics going. And, you know... Electronic gamers have a much lower tolerance for abstraction than board gamers do, so there's there's often a very you know pretty low limit as to how things can translate. But nonetheless, it's 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 really neat to to, to go through and, and and try to try to get good coverage in in my collection. This is also germane because uh, my my game room is, is is starting to overflow as every mm. as every board game hobbyist uh, has has sometimes encountered yep. this phenomenon and. And so what I've tried to do is I've tried to, to look at my games and see, well, on this topic, which one is the best? You know, how many how many French and Indian war games do I need? <laughs> and you know, which is for me um, uh, a different question than how many are am I ac actually likely to play? Mm -hmm. um, so, for example, uh, the sort of uh, the Bruce Harper magnum opus, uh, A World of War, the one that is almost its own sub convention at the yeah. WBCs every year. Mm -hmm. That one, I played a ton of Advanced Third Reich, and I played a bunch of Empire of the Rising Sun, which eventually got glommed into that release. But I've never actually played the combined A World at War, and yet, nonetheless, I take tremendous inspiration from it. It's got a very clever diplomacy system. It's got a very <laughs> clever research system. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and, and so I feel like having that game at my fingertips is, is valuable to me. <laughs> right. Even, even if I'm, I'm, I'm really pretty unlikely to ever play it in any sure. meaningful sense um but the breadth of games today is so is so amazing as you mentioned that now if i you know, i 
every t- every topic is covered, right? I can have yep. a Spanish Civil War game. I can have <laughs> a game about Angola. Now with Volko Rukud doing his coin games, of course, I can ha- you know how can I get rid of my only game on uh, the Colombian insurgency of the nineties? <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it's crazy, and, and it's you know I, I always was surprised um, looking back on the on the hobby, like when I grew up with it. Um, it seemed like people were designing all these these games about obscure subjects, and um, you know there was nobody to play them with, and the mechanics were pretty. I mean, there, there was some innovation going on, but a lot of the mechanics are pretty similar. They were just games were bigger and more complicated, but they still had combat factors and everything. And yeah. now I remember, yeah, Joe Miranda's uh, strategy and tactics games. I have a lot of respect for for Joe Miranda mm-hmm. as a designer, but. You did get a sense of deja vu when looking at some of his uh, some of his releases, even right. on fairly wildly different topics. Yeah, I mean, you could you, you basically took the map. I mean, not just a, not talking about Joe Miranda, but in, in general, you know, you would look at the sort of universe of games, and somebody would take a map, and then they would put hexes on it, and then they would decide what the units were going to be, and then they got two or three numbers depending on whether attack and defense strength were different or the same, and uh, they would have a movement. Uh, factor, and then you'd sort of get some rules for how far and fast and what the terrain was, and then you had a game, right? Um, and so, I mean, that certainly is not the case anymore. I just had a uh, um, an interesting experience. We almost weren't able to do this because we had some terrible thunderstorms uh, last night, and my power was out until very recently. And when, when I got home from work, um, I noticed the power was out, and uh, my wife's uh, out of town, um, so I was kind of just going to uh, figure out what to do with myself, and then I realized I went and got the mail, and a copy of uh, Victory Point Games' Autumn and Sunset showed up. Oh, and, okay. One of their new and, solo games. New solo games, yeah. And and I thought, well, this is easy. If there's if I can't uh, if I don't have any power, I'm just going to sit at the kitchen table and play this solitaire game about the uh, Turks in World War One, uh, which is objectively a crazy thing to say, and not but, an option you would have had 20 years ago. Exactly, and and so now. You know, you can you can find almost anything, and um, and the question I kind of have is, if you can find almost anything, then what do you actually want to find? Because I, I don't know what my answer is. Although I think maybe I'll come up with one at the end of the podcast. What, Ananda, what do you think about that? Well, so when it comes specifically to war gaming, war, war gaming, I've really got to say, and it's it's funny you bring up uh, Victory Point Games because I really got to say that I think. Some of the things they've been doing with games that have really low count, counter density mm-hmm. have just tremendously appealed to me. So their their No Retreat Eastern Front game yes. is 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 the front runner to be the one Eastern Front game I keep, mm. right? Because it has it's it's a beautiful map, mm-hmm. very well produced, and the, the the physical feel of the counters is great, and the fact that you know the the Soviet starting the Soviet starting setup is is, is half a dozen pieces maybe. Mm-hmm. Yep. And you know, with with a physical presentation like that, I think I think there's definitely that that just had a tremendous appeal to me, even when I knew nothing about the rules, right? Because at this point in my life, it takes a lot for me to get an Eastern Front game, <laughs> and and so and so, but when I saw that, I was like, well, I have to do that, you know. And I, I one of the things as a war gamer, I have never had a huge attachment or fondness for the northern uh, for the desert. Uh, okay. the Desert Front. Oh, in, really? In World the... War Two. Yeah, I just never, I just never, I don't know. It's just, it's just never, uh, never appealed to me a huge okay. amount. Um, Fair enough. But Carl Paradis, who designed No Retreat, mm-hmm. uh, has done a follow-up 
They get no retreat in North Africa. Yes, and I am sorely tempted by it. I've already, I've already, but you know, because it's North Africa, I haven't pre-ordered it. I did pre-order his next two, which are the France and Poland campaigns. Yeah. Um, because uh, you know, you have a good, you know, it turns out he does have a great system there. Yeah. But the, the, this counter density thing, you know, Victory Point Games is also pushing forward this Napoleon Twenty idea, right? The idea yeah, that here, let's how many, you know, let's let's simulate a whole bunch of Napoleonic battles using uh, twenty pieces or less. Right. And. There's, there's some. I don't know why that appeals to me so much, but maybe, maybe it's because the production value can be higher, and and so the the physical feel of the game, and the playability of the game seems to be better, and as a result, it's very distinct from. It it it, it sort of accentuates the the difference between it and a and a, and a computer game, which yeah. is that you have a physical. You, there's a, a very tangible situation between you and your opponent. And I think this is actually one of the reasons why I've I've had a lot of trouble getting into the online board gaming. Hmm. I, uh, I I feel like the uh, I, f- I feel like you know with, with wargameroom.com is wonderful, and I know a lot of people play Twilight Struggle mm-hmm. on it mm-hmm. and play other other modern ports like Labyrinth and mm-hmm. and and so forth. People play on Vassal all the time, and I know right. that. Without these things, the hobby, the wargaming hobby, would be in much worse shape because sure. people wouldn't be able to play nearly as much. And yet, I have not been myself able to get into those because part of the fun, if I if I want to play something on a screen, I'll play a computer game, and if I want to play uh, a nice cerebral war game, I want I want the touch factor. And, right. and, and and games these days, I think, consciously or not, are moving towards that. Yeah. Well, I think that I think the the real um, the problem with uh, with the war game room uh, for uh, for listeners who don't know what this is, this is a, a sort of sort of an electronic um, uh, like a meeting place, and actually will enforce the rules for various games. Um, I believe it enforces the rules, doesn't it? It does. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You have you have little Java, you have Java apps yeah, for yeah, all the, the games that it supports. Yeah. So, um, but but the, the downside to that, at least the last time I was on, is that the it's it's very primitive graphics. Um, and uh, and one of the things for me that really appeals uh, that makes gaming appealing in itself, um, besides the you know the thought process, is the way in which a well a graphically well designed game uh, sort of hooks me from a historical perspective. When I'm playing a historical game or you know any game, whatever, it, it, it evokes some setting. Setting is so important in in gaming, and uh, you know a well done science fiction setting uh, can be extremely compelling. And when you lose all that with the war game room uh, setup, yeah, but. it's 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 very true. One of my favorite board games, one that I keep coming to over and over and over over the years. I think I've played it a couple times a year for the last ten years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it, it's, it's it's brass. It's Martin Wallace's yes. uh, Industrial Revolution game, and there is an online brass app because it's a good game and people enjoy playing it. And I have no, I, I tried to play it a couple times and I just had, I just could not get into it. I had no interest in it. And I think part of it is the, is the, is the cadence of it. It's, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, I like to sit down and play and finish a board game uh, and continuing sessions is increasingly less, less appealing to mm-hmm. me, especially for a game that is not a giant long-term war game. But, um, but but brass, brass just has that as you were saying. You know, it has that great visual, evocative look to mm-hmm. it, uh, with all the towns and the names and the and the and the and, you know the sort of Martin Wallace's fairly spare aesthetic approach. Nonetheless, really evokes the era nicely. 
there's just something about putting down those canals and rails that mm-hmm. feels like, yeah, I'm, I'm developing England and I'm doing it with with something physical. Yeah, and that's it. It's complete. It's a. <clears throat> it's similar to uh, you know what you get in a in a um, in an electronic game. I, I like that term that you use rather than video game or computer game, but in an electronic game, um, but. The, the board game has to take on a lot more the board game is carrying a lot more baggage because because since it's abstract it sort of has to carry all this this um, expectation on it and you were talking about the th- it's interesting about the the uh, the Napoleonic uh, 20 series the victory point games once again for listeners who don't uh, know what this is Napoleonic games have historically been um, sort of arenas or or, or settings for really elaborate uh, art design in in board war games because Napoleonic uniforms were so uh, colorful and so distinctive. So, you know, if, if you had a game about the Battle of Leipzig and you had all these different, you know, nationalities, then each nationality had to have its own color scheme. And uh, a Clash of Arms games um, produced a, a, a game where um, the counters were incredibly detailed and incredibly well, um, they were like almost hand-drawn and uh, that's the kind of thing that uh, you would get with those kind of games. But also, they tended to, the tactical battles tended to be really, really big. And what Victory Point Games is doing is that they're sort of intentionally subverting that whole thing and saying, "Okay, we're going. We, we know what the sort of paradigm is. We we know what the expectations are." It's, it's a, now a design challenge to us to make it work in this completely different environment, which I which I love. I love designers deciding, hey, you know, this is the way it's always been done, so I'm not going to do it at all like that. Um, but you have to have you, you still have to have that graphic design to, to tie it all together, and then and then carry that forward. So, um, so I'm I'm amazed that now we can have companies like Victory Point Games, which are um, Really started out as in Alan Emmerich's attic, as I understand. Um, yeah, yeah. As now they're 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 producing. I mean, really quality. I mean, uh, what I'm looking at right now is not much. I'm holding Ottoman uh, Sunset in my hand. It's not really that much different than what I would expect from uh, you know from a from a Victory Games uh, box or from a you know Avalon Hill box from the you know late '70s or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, and the counters that they make are, are really heavy duty and nice. Um, so we have this we have this huge sort of palette of gaming, and uh, I can I can play this uh, solitaire game. What do you think of what do you think of solitaire games, Ananda? What do you, how do you feel about that whole the whole genre of, of games we play against ourselves? Um, so I think so. Solitaire games are definitely something where I feel like. Electronic games do it better. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel so. For example, there's FTL. There's Faster Than Light, which just came out for the iPad, and, but was a Steam yep. release before that. Yep. And that is that is just an epic solitaire experience. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel, and I, I mean, without even going into all the games that that invest so much in their single player campaigns. You know, I, I recently finished Batman: Arkham Origins, which was. Not particularly well received by critics, but which I found very enjoyable, uh, and and that of course is like being in your own comic book, and and you get to patrol around. You feel to me. So Batman: Arkham Origins is the third in the in the Arkham series from uh, from Rocksteady, although I believe this one was subcontracted. But 
it it had it already had the best in class sort of action comic book combat, uh, hand to hand combat, uh, the most smooth. The you know, I, I, the first game in that series, Arkham Asylum, did such a great job of making you feel as competent at fighting people as as uh, as Batman, even though you had no idea what you were doing because you never played the game and it didn't have any 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 previous titles, <laughs> um, and. Um, and so to me, um, a solitaire game uh, in paper can, it's very hard, it's very hard for, for solitaire games on paper to compete with that, with, with, with what electronic games can do. And of course, if, you know, if one says, well, you know, Batman, Batman games are, are, are not strategy games, which, you know, they're not. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, I, you know, here at Fraxis, we make Civilization and we make, and we make, uh, uh, XCOM and right. and so I, and I, I hesitated there because I was I was bringing to mind I, there's actually a game from the early 2000s that I, I was playing last night which is which is Emperor Rise of the Middle Kingdom it's a city building game is set in, in 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 ancient China and so I, I solitaire games you know I have Dan Versen's uh, Alexander Field Marshal game which I haven't even cracked open mm -hmm. but which I look forward to doing. I have, um, you know, I've played London's Burning, which is a Ben Knight game, which I think is a great conceptual game mm -hmm. about about the Battle of Britain. And I've played most of the VP ones, uh, Israeli Independence and, and Soviet Dawn. Uh, and my favorite one is the French Revolution one, Levé on Mass. Really? Interesting. Well, uh, Levé on Mass is really cool because the French Revolution is a very complicated... It, it helped me understand the French Revolution better, which hmm. uh, the French Revolution is just this this utter... utterly... Uh, I've been reading I've been reading Hilary Mantel's uh, Place, of, uh, uh, Place of Greater Safety, mm -hmm. which is uh, which a novel, uh, but quite historically based okay. about the about the personalities of the French Revolution. You know, we don't, we know so little about Robespierre, even though he was one of the most important people in Europe for a brief period of time. But that's the thing: the French Revolution. When one when one looks at that, this the, the the closeness of the events, the pace of events is just so rapid that it's it's very hard to get one's head around. And I, I think Levan Mast does a great job of showing. The number of chainsaws that they <laughs> that they had to juggle. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, you know, I've definitely played my share of solitaire games, but right. but in general, if I'm solo, it's it's very hard for me to step away from the computer for 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 that. Rob, what do you think? Would you play a solitaire game? I want to. I want to be the sort of person who basically. I want to be the sort of person who's like you, who's like, boy, powers out in my house. Instead of complaining and whining about it, I'm going to sit down at my table and maybe crack open this board game and play it by myself. But the odds are very good that I, that's that's probably uh, not me. I think the the most serious flirtation I had with um, solo board gaming was when. Basically, nobody would play uh, Squad Leader when I was growing mm -hmm. up, and yeah. so I just started playing both sides. Well, uh, it was actually kind thing. of interesting. Yeah. That's the uh, thing, right? I mean, that's that's how so many people who grew up with board war, board wargaming in the you know seventies and eighties or whatever. That's what they did, you know. I mean, I remember taking out games and going, "Huh, I'd love to play this against somebody, but there's no chance that's ever going to happen." So. I'll just set it up and see what would happen. And of course, he'd play a few turns, and they would get boring. And you know, because you, you're playing both sides, and so you know what yourself is going to do. So uh, you would, it, and it would just fall apart. But uh, but I so there was something about the setup, and I think that's the thing that Ananda was saying was that, that just having a bunch of counters. I love taking out. Um, I I bought um, the um, most recent uh, Ted Racer um, 
uh, Eastern Front game. I'm, I'm a sucker for Eastern Front games. If it, it's about the Eastern Front, I'll just buy it and just figure it out later. Are you talking but about Dark Valley or are you talking Dark, about Stalin's yeah, War? Dark Valley. Dark Valley. Okay. And I, I bought Dark Valley, and I, and I just opened it up and thought, wow, look at this. You know, it's a giant map, um, all these counters. I'd love to set this up and play it. And then I just pulled up the Vassal uh, module and was like, huh, I could set this up on my you know, screen. But there's something, there's something about just putting it on a table and putting all the counters out and saying, oh, look how beautiful this looks. There's an aesthetic to it. Um, but, uh, but I feel like you can do that... It's possible to do that with a solitaire game, and and I know exactly what you're talking about. Like you know, if I can I can sit down at a computer and sort of immediately get lost in 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 um and I was just playing uh, I, I I backed the Kickstarter for uh, Fail Better Sunless Sea, so uh, I have a you know a beta that I'm playing or an alpha or whatever version it's called, and uh, I just love just kind of disappearing into it when I'm you know I come home from work it's really late I'm really tired I'm like okay I need thirty minutes where I just don't have to deal with anything and uh and i just get lost in this in this in this sort of amazing setting and it's really hard to do that with a board game but i think it can be done and i, I can't believe that you're gonna have you played if you've played so many victory point games have you played victory points uh solitaire uh barbarossa uh game you know i don't think i have okay, what's so it called what's the name it, of it it's it's uh it's called um uh, Operation Barbarossa Solitaire, or no, it's called, uh, yeah, I think it is. Who do you play as, the Germans? You play as the Germans. It's, it's, an, it's, an, amazing, it's an amazing design. Now, the, I, so that is something I think you should, because the counter, once again, low counter density, um, but uh, really, really interesting system. The way that they do combat is, um, I think, pretty original. Um, you you uh, have cards that sort of um, it, it's not really card driven, but it is kind of card driven. You a lot of things are abstracted in, like the the uh, the balance of German versus Soviet armor and the technology of armor. Um, this there's a there's a whole bunch of uh, all the chrome and flavor in the that you have to have in a game to make it an Eastern Front game, or at least a. a uh, you know, a, a, a game that spans the whole campaign of the Eastern Front um, is in that game, but all in these very interesting ways. So I, I, that's a game, I think if you're looking for ideas or just looking to see where things are, I think that's a game that you should definitely pick up and read. And you might even want to sit down and play it or at least see how it works out because um, that's a fantastic design. That Is, it, it, is it Hexes or Ares? Uh, it's Hexes. Okay. It's Hexes. So- you have a... You have a front line, and then you sort of you make your <clears throat> the, the units don't even have uh, um, sort of combat values. They just they're just units, and they're sort of and they're um, there are a lot of units that are just placeholders. So you know you can attack, and and um, you have to reform the line with units. There are you know line units versus um, versus special units like tanks, guard, things like that. Um, but it is a it, it is a hex game. Yeah, no, I, I think I'd heard of it, but I don't think I, I don't think it ever jumped out at me as something to play. Um, and you know, maybe I'll make an exception to the uh, very hard to get an East Front game. <laughs> should, you should definitely um, this, this should this should meet that criteria. It's it's interesting. You talk about Chrome. Um, so Chrome Chrome was this big buzzword back in you know years and years ago, and Chrome, and I think the idea of Chrome's emerged from. What we were talking about with the, the sort of somewhat 
cookie cutter feeling mechanics mm-hmm. right. between you know between a game. Like you said, you you have a map, you put you impose some hexes on it, you come up with some mm-hmm. units in an order of battle, you give them some numbers. But then you add Chrome to make right. the, to make the, the the game feel unique. And now you don't really hear a lot of discussion about Chrome because Chrome is expected, right? Mm. And Chrome is Chrome is built into you know, Euro games have done you know your abstract sort of uh, shorter playing Euro games have have internalized the idea of Chrome so well, right? That now people don't critique games as much for excessive Chrome because designers and publishers have learned about how to build that in, right? Um, you know, Agricola. Does Agricola have a lot of Chrome? I don't know. I mean, the Chrome is inseparable from the game. Right, right. right. Well, it's style. I mean, that's the thing. It's, you know, Chrome used to be, the reason it was called Chrome was because everything had the same kind of structure, right? And then you kind of, you know, Chrome was just this 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 veneer that you put over something. And so, you know, your your East Front game and your North Africa game Maybe kind of the same game, but the Chrome for the for the you know East Front would have you know Winter and 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 the Chrome for the North Africa would have you know special supply rules and, and the Qatar dust- Depression always Chrome for right, the Qatar right. Depression and, and dust storms right so I mean but but ultimately something was you know something had seven attack factors and four movement factors and you know yada yada so but I agree it, it's a good observation that you don't really have Chrome because the game design I think the I think card driven games actually were the first that sort of Figured out how to take Chrome and and remove it from the from the the presentation of the counters and the and the map, but still put it in front of you because you That's you, right. have, you have to. It's special, no longer front loaded, yeah. right? Chrome right. is no longer front loaded with exactly. card driven games. You have you, you may not even understand all the quote unquote Chrome in a card driven game until your third play, and mm-hmm. that's that's okay, right? Right, that's just fine. Yeah. Uh, and I think that I mean I think. Honestly, that is that is what caused card-driven games to take off. Was the fact that that assimilated that Chrome so well and presented? Yes, I agree. Um, and that and, that, that and the somewhat artificial de- decision making of what am I spending this using this card for? Am I using am I using it for movement or for fighting or for reinforcements or for Chrome? <laughs> right. right. Well, I mean, right. But, but that gave you. I mean, but just that the idea of that is such an amazing sort of innovation because in in the old days. You had this map, and you had a bunch of counters, and you just moved the counters, right? And the idea that you would have cards in your hand that somehow changed the way you moved the counters was crazy. But it, it, it sort of took your imaginative space and your decision space – I hate the word decision space, but I just used it um, – and it, it expanded into, into – it, it just it gives the game so much more depth. You're, you're looking at the map position. You're looking at the – resources in your hand you can use those things for multiple things um and and you have a nice picture you can you can actually illustrate things that uh that otherwise you have no, really no way to represent in the game and like we said before you know representation and and um uh you know presentation are so important uh in in games that uh that that was just i'm i'm shocked that that it took however many years for that to to uh, to show up on the uh, on the menu. By the way, the game is the Barbarossa Campaign. It's designed by Gary Graber, uh, and it's um, it's called just called the Barbarossa Campaign, uh, but it's a solitaire game. I'll have to take a look. So revisiting the just real quick, just revisiting the the, the solitaire uh, point you were, you were, you're making earlier, Bruce. Uh, so your your the things you've written on your site uh, the the, mm-hmm. the uh, about the, your solitaire gaming adventures and the interview series you're doing. 
it really caught my interest, and I think one of the things I find actually really interesting, it does make me want to play these games, uh, particularly a game like Vietnam Solitaire, mm-hmm. uh, is, is that it, it seems like solitaire gaming does offer, you know, it's different. It's it's a subtly different medium, right? It, it mm-hmm. offers, and and that gives you a different way to express certain ideas about a subject that maybe you don't find in a traditional, like you know, uh, multiplayer board game, and you certainly I don't think find very often in electronic gaming. And so I, you know, I, I think, w- you know, you don't. What what interests me in 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 your in the solo wargaming you're describing mm-hmm. is, is that there tends to be to a degree there there's a bit of an argument uh behind it and then it's also this interesting case of the systems become the adversary the system drives the game and you you respond to it but it doesn't necessarily need someone you know playing from the other side of the board and i think if there maybe is one you know thing that frustrates me a little bit about electronic games sometimes is that there's this idea that yes it's solo gaming but by god we absolutely have to come as close as possible to creating the illusion of a human opponent and a human mm-hmm. intelligence on the opposite side of the uh, playing field and i think that that can be a really limiting thing it's why we always end up in these sort of cul-de-sac discussions about the quality of a game's ai mm-hmm. uh, when i think there's more opportunity for having uh systems drive a bit more of the action and take a little bit of pressure off uh you know th- you know uh a computer passing the Turing test, basically, of strategy. Right, right. Well, I want to throw it over to Nanda, because that seems like it, it, it's very much um, right up the alley of a, of a electronic game designer who can also do the same things that a solitaire game designer can do, which is that he or she can construct a system in which, um, you know, first of all, it's asymmetric. The, uh, the player and the adversary don't necessarily aren't necessarily even using the same system, maybe. And then there are things that are hidden by creating this this uh, this asymmetric system. Like when you mentioned Vietnam Solitaire, I mean, the the, the computer player, which is really, you know, the, the system, which is the, the solitaire adversary, the system is playing by a completely different set of rules and does different things, except for the combat. Um, and... Uh, it, it reminds me kind of of, a, of a, an electronic game where um, you can sort of hide what the what the what the electronic adversary is doing. Although some people call that cheating, um, but uh, I don't know. Maybe Anana can just talk about how uh, how if whether that's limiting. Whether you really do feel like you need to have a, a real human opponent. Uh, or whether you like with XCOM, I mean, you you have a campaign. You can set that campaign up any way you want. You can have a story, a backstory that that uh, allows you to set up situations that may be imbalanced, and so the the, the player may be uh, disadvantaged, and therefore has to play better than the than the AI to win. Uh, and as yeah. long as you sell it to the player, then 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 it's fine, right? Right. If that makes sense as part of the narrative, then then absolutely, you can start the player out with all sorts of disadvantages. Although uh, with you know, we we of course put difficulty levels into our games. You know, XCOM had four different difficulty levels. Civ has, I think, seven, and um, and so we can we can guide players' expectations about how much the AI has to hew to the same rules you do mm-hmm. uh, with di- with difficulty levels. You know, players players who play on daily level in Civ understand that the the AI is getting a few boosts here and there, and actually on daily, you know more than a few 
Um, and then it, in XCOM, it, it, it flips around, right? We have this, we, you know, we have this narrative that we're carrying forward, but if you're playing on easy or normal difficulty, uh, it's very hard to get your last soldier in a mission killed. Right? Hmm. We, will, we will do a lot. <laughs> we, we will do a lot to, to uh, we'll, we'll give you a few chances if that, if that shot came in. Um, in fact, on easy, I'm not even sure it's possible. I'd have to go back and double check hmm. where we ended up there. But on easy, it may not even be possible to lose your last soldier. Um, and again, we, we, as long as the players are, are reasonably clear about that, you know, I mean, we don't have to explicitly tell them stuff like that, but on easy, when we tell players, if you pick this, then, you know, you're not getting the intended level of challenge. This is something for people who are completely new to this kind of game or who right. don't, you know, who, who want to play through and experience the, the, the story. I mean, that's, that's, that's how, that's how, uh, action oriented games label their difficulty levels, you know, in, in mass effect, you have. You have, I think, three or four difficulty levels, but there's a, uh, the, you know, like the, the, the one that says casual basically says, pick this one if you're more interested in the story, mm -hmm. right? And right. everybody understands that's code for the battles aren't going to be that hard, right? Um, and then, uh, and then of course you can take an, an approach like The Witcher does, where early in the game, once you've learned some basic maneuvering and, and, and sword swinging and, and and talk to some people, you, you get into this arena event where you fight waves and waves of enemies and once the waves and waves once you've once you finally succumbed it it basically analyzes what you did and how many waves you beat and recommends you a difficulty level hmm. uh which was you know i i which was funny i'm not sure <laughs> i i i was able to to survive 12 waves and i was feeling pretty good about myself and then it said you should play on easy yeah <laughs> and i was like well okay <laughs> um so cl clearly, I clearly I needed to survive a, a, a great deal more. <laughs> but yeah. um, well, the, um, the so, I mean the 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 idea of of uh, you know so, sort of personalized uh, you know difficulties is something you can really only do with a. Um, oh, I guess you could, I guess you could you know give yourself an assault. Game. I mean, you know there there are um, ways to give players you know extra counters or whatever you know extra units. Um, bonuses, but then it feels that in a solitaire game or in a board game feels really cheesy. Yes, especially because I think I think a lot of designers assume that players will sort of self-correct the difficulty, if you know what I mean, mm -hmm. uh, when they have it, you know, in a board game context when they have access to it. Um, I mean, I think uh, so. I mean, Vol Volko Runka, who designed Labyrinth: The War on Terror, he had not d initially designed a solitaire mode for that uh -huh. uh, and. Then when they announced the game and put it out, they got a lot of feedback from their core audience basically saying, this game sounds incredibly cool, but neither neither I nor my regular playing partner find it uh, palatable to play as the jihadists. Hmm. So Interesting. Uh, would it be possible for there to be a solitaire mode where you can play as the U.S. and the jihadists are run by sort of a, an AI? Okay. And Volko thought about that and he said, well... I will go ahead and do that. So that and so Labyrinth shipped as you know a one to two player game, mm -hmm. and if you want, you can you can solo as the U.S. in that game. Hmm. And um, I didn't realize oh, that was the reason. Um, yeah, yeah, they uh, that was a very late feature that they did not uh, that they did not actually intend that Volco didn't intend to do until until after the game was announced and they saw the fan reaction, which again was very positive. But it's it, there, there's a lot of people who. You know, have U.S. military experience, or who right. have you know, and, and who who just felt very uncomfortable about playing an enemy who's not his playing as an enemy. Sure, 
who is not more historically removed. I mean, yeah. obviously, obviously, I think people people's scruples about playing as the Nazis or the Soviets or the Confederates. Uh, I think those those are more distant. Right. In, well, in people will play. Sense. Yeah, I mean, people will play as the Germans against the in the Battle of the Bulge against yep. the Americans without really too much too many qualms, I think, at all. Yeah, no, they won't bat an eye. I mean, as long, I mean, uh, Battle of the Bulge games sometimes get a little bit weird about, you know, Piper and, 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 and yeah. uh, Malmedy yep. and all that, mm-hmm. but, but but you're right. On, on the whole, if you want to play a Battle of the Bulge game against people, it's fine. And I mean, I mean of, of course, I don't know how widely played, like, I don't know what fraction of Labyrinth games are solo versus people who are perfectly willing to play as the jihadists. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but uh, but yeah, that was definitely a very strong reaction that people that, that at least some people had, and it was enough for Volko to say, well, you know, it's not that it's not. Let me put my mind to it, and if I can come up with something good, we'll put it in. And and and, and frankly, a lot of a lot of uh, electronic game features kind of come out that way too, where you know, you if you recognize something that the fans and the audience want, and you can you can do it without derailing the actual product, then um, then then you you can try to do it. Um, I wanted to actually jump back to card-driven games for just a moment there, yeah, which sure. was which was um, something else that card-driven games did was they they uh, solved the downtime problem in war games, mm-hmm. right? Without one of the problems war games often have was that okay, I move all my units and do all their stuff, and you're not really doing much, and then you do the same, and I'm not doing much, and so right. your turn takes a long time, and my turn takes a long time, and we're both spending the same amount of time playing the game. But it's in much bigger blocks, whereas the card-driven games broke those up, so that there's a lot more back and forth. Right. You're, you're not, it's it's your 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 downtime is a lot less, and I think that was something. Tolerance for downtime is something that the Euro game wave of the early two thousands, uh, you know, late nineties and early two thousands, mm-hmm. that people's tolerance for downtime just went out the window. Yeah. People. I remember reading a lot of posts by very fairly dedicated historical gamers who you know, played games like Settlers in Puerto Rico and said, you know, I just can't go back to these games where I have to, you know, I have to wait half an hour for my turn and then spend right. half an hour on my turn. Yeah. Right. I'd, I'd just rather play a game where it takes three minutes to do my turn. If yeah. That. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I think that that's uh, that's something. That, but I, interestingly enough, I don't think you need to necessarily have to play. You have to use card uh, card driven games as an example because. I think that before card-driven games existed, games that had uh, you know impulses where you moved a unit and then your opponent moved a unit. Um, I, I'm thinking specifically of something like uh, Tobruk or um, or games where you had uh, variable activation. Uh, there was a game that I really enjoyed. Uh, always that the design was a little uh, flawed, but um, called The Legend Begins. I'm, I'm a North Africa fanatic, so I have all the North Africa games about it. Whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there was a game called The Legend Begins by Mark Simonich, who uh, is now a graphic designer at, at GMT. Uh, but he had his own company called Rhino Games uh, in the early 90s. And um, he basically, you know, you had a cup. And based on your um, based on your command initiative, you had a certain number of chits in that cup. And then you'd draw a chit out and it created some great tension because you knew exactly what you wanted to do. But you if you drew the other person's chit out of the cup, then the other person got to move. Um, and and so there was a back and forth with that. I mean, he was an early pioneer for card driven as well with uh, Hannibal, right? Yes, that's true. Yes, Hannibal. Oh, that's a great game. Holy yes, cow! It is. Yeah. Um, um, anyway, we were talking about solitaire and about what you what 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 abstractions and what what you can conceal from players and so forth. And and I think um, you know every every strategy game designer 
on the electronics side has a story about how they designed a system that was under the hood very simple and possibly just as, as simple as rolling a die and determining what happened from a lookup table mm-hmm. that players would project enormous meaning onto. Right. Players would would see patterns that, that were coincidental, but that didn't seem to them to be coincidental. And so they would assume that a much greater machinery lay under there. Uh, and, and, you know, for example, a mission generation system where you'd see one mission and you'd do it, and then another mission would pop up that seemed very related, and your imagination draws the draws the line between the two. And this is something that I think, um, that I think distinguishes, in electronic games, distinguishes strategy games from games like Arkham Origins action games or, or, or RPGs like, like Mass Effect, where we are willing, and indeed we, we see it as good, to let the player build the narrative in their own head. And we want to provide enough context narratively that there's some building blocks and some foundation for that. But, but that's all very macro. And at the micro level, the narrative is very much player constructed in their imaginations. Mm-hmm. And so in Civ or in XCOM, we give you that, that, that picture frame but the player's mind is drawing is drawing the picture, and I think that's something that electronic strategy games have maintained with with uh, board games, right? Board games, a lot of fun in board games is imagining in your head some of the micro details that are going on below the counter level. Right. Oh yeah, and 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 um, and I, I feel like there are games in which electronic games in which there's stuff going on that is only going on to create the notion that something's going on, right? It may yeah. not be, it may not, the mechanic itself may not be something that you're necessarily paying attention to or going to act on, but the fact that, you know, 16 tons of wool were produced in Madagascar is important to you because it's creating this world where, you know, hey, there's some wool over there and, you know, those people are, you know, you're creating this illusion that there's just, you know, there's this whole civilization in the game and while you're not paying attention to it, it just fills out your world so much more, um, whereas in a in a board game, obviously that just just a whole bunch of extra uh, work that you can't um, bunch of extra wrist yeah. wristage yeah. and and, exactly. and counter and counter and, and and stack counting and so forth. Right. Um. So the king, the game that's currently the king of that sort of thing is is Crusader Kings Two. Right. Which uh, I got absolutely hooked on. I probably got 150 hours into it, mm. and um, I haven't even unfortunately. The game with all its expansions has outpaced the capabilities of my poor machine at home. So if I want to play the full game with the India expansion, I have to do it at work. Okay. And of course, work is not a great place to throw yourself into one of those strategy games that right. takes hours and hours and hours to really fall into. But um, Crusader Kings, so the designer of Crusader Kings gave a great talk at the Game Developers Conference this year, and he talked about narrative and strategy games and how Crusader Kings creates these or impels its players to to create these very detailed narratives and to show the, to show the stories that are happening and how all these interesting situations are made are caused in in, in Crusader Kings. I don't know if either of you have played Crusader Kings too, but I oh, yeah. I haven't. I'm sure Rob has. Yep. Uh, yeah. So you know what I'm talking about. How many hours in it do you have? I, I don't have that many. I, I can't imagine. I probably I'm embarrassed to say probably ten. Ten. <laughs> how about you, Rob? Uh, so I didn't get nearly as hooked on it as I did uh, Europe Universalis 4. That's kind oh, of yeah. my paradox jam. But uh, I'm definitely like in the uh, 
I definitely put a couple JRPGs worth of time into uh, Crusader King, so I think I'm pushing the 80, 90 hour mark. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, just a crazy, crazy game in terms of, of how much freedom of action you have and, and all the different roles you can play and how the game creates an alternate universe for you to operate in, even though mo- most of it may not be in your purview. And how it also dangles interesting historical carrots in front of you you know, you, if you get all four of the, the crowns of the British Isles, you could become Emperor of Britannia, uh, which never happened historically, of course, but, but you could do it. And, hmm. um, and so the, the, the designer of Crusader Kings gave, gave a talk, and I unfortunately didn't see the talk live, but I saw his, uh, I saw his slide deck um, in which he, he talked about what are the necessary ingredients for the stew that is Crusader Kings 2. And, and, you know, one of the things he talked about was having lots of AI actors doing each doing some thing, interesting things that interact with one another. And so normally my impulse, one of, one of, you know, one of the rules that we have at Firaxis, and I think that uh, is, a, is a sort of common game design principle, is that in electronic games is that you can't, you have to make sure the AI isn't having more fun than the player is. Hmm. And, um, and so this is a, a trap for, for sort of rookie designers who will fall into this this, this idea of I'm going, to, I'm going to design this incredibly cool system that's doing all these incredibly cool things uh, under the hood and presenting the player with this stuff. And you have to look at it and you have to say, okay, so you're designing all this cool stuff that the player doesn't actually get to, to, to experience directly. Is that really worth it? Right? We want the player to be the one who has the fun. You know, and so, for example, um, another sort of corollary to this principle is, is the idea is, is the idea that that the AI doesn't post on forums, <laughs> okay, right, right. Um, you, it, it's there. There, uh, a, a good example of this is is critical hits, right? So, you know, the natural twenty in D in D and D. Every time you attack, if you hit, you have a then chance to do a whole bunch of bonus damage. Well, um, that's really fun to do to the AI. <laughs> it's really not very fun when the AI does it to you, hmm. and. Games recognize this. Uh, you know, if you look at World of Warcraft and their their critical hit system, only players get critical hit. The AI has a similar mechanic called crushing blows, which causes them to do bonus damage, but it's predictable. If you are fighting an enemy who is at or below your level, mm-hmm. then you will never suffer a crushing blow, ever, mm-hmm. guaranteed. And then the chance of suffering a, cr- a crushing blow goes up fairly predictably and in fairly large chunks the, the, the higher level the, the, the target is. Whereas if you're fighting a player, at least in sort of WoW 1.0 and 2.0, um, if you're fighting a player, then either of you can critical hit the other. Right? This is the sort of... I this see. Is, this is the sort of... Um, because then, then at least, while it's no fun to get crit, at least somebody, some live person is enjoying himself. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and so... And that, I mean, there's no reason for that. Well, there are reasons, other reasons for that, but there, 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 a, a good reason for that mechanic is is simply to say, um, getting crit by the by the computer just has all the negative and none of the positive fun uh, of the mechanic. And so, and so, um, let's see, how did I get onto that? Oh, oh yeah. So when when I saw the the talk by the Crusader Kings, or when I saw the slides from the Crusader Kings two designer, I. I was sort of skeptical upon reading it, the idea that, oh, here's all these AI actors doing really interesting things that are invisible to me or that I don't care about. Mm. Um, 
And after reflecting on that, I think I came more around to the uh, a take kind of like what you expressed, which was that, yeah, those AI actors are doing interesting things, and they're largely engaging in the same activities I am, but the, the, the end product of that is this endlessly dynamic, unique narrative mm-hmm. and setting in which I'm engaging and managing my very own medieval Europe soap opera. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and that, and that is a very worthy end result. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I've, I've taken that very closely to heart. Yeah. And paradox games, I mean, do that in general, I think, I mean, like, uh, you know, Victoria too. Uh, I mean, there's so much going on in the game. I'm not really sure what's going on in that game, but I do feel like I'm somehow when I, when I start playing it, I'm, I'm in this sort of, you know, industrial, you know, revolution Europe, um, and that it really does matter, you know, how I treat my, you know, workers or what the tax on fabric is or whatever. Um, I mean, it just, everything seem things seem important, even though I'm not sure of whether they are or not. Um, and that's the kind of evolution, but it's, it's a completely different, different goal that you're sort of trying to achieve, I think. Um, or maybe it's not a different goal. It's just a different, a, a different, uh, part of the escapism that you're addressing. Do you think that, that the stuff about the AI having more fun than you are, can that happen in a in a board game and, and be productive? I mean, because in, in a way you can have the the sort of I'm trying to think of um I'm trying to think of games uh where that's the case. Um some there's an old game called uh, Empires of the Middle Ages where mm-hmm. half half the fun was sort of figuring out um, you know, just watching the board develop and what the you know what the different rulers, what their, what their stats were and how sort of empires fell and, 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 and grew and, and, um, and, but you were doing it yourself, right? So, I mean, you, the, the AI, um, was having fun, but you were having fun because you were implementing the stuff that the AI was doing. Um, you, you think you can, you can have a game like that, um, as a board game and make it work? Is there a different design, uh, edict? Would, uh, Firaxis have a different design edict for a board game if they made board games? Um, well, I think that's an interesting question, because what you said is cool about implementing the results in Empires of the Middle Ages, which unfortunately I never had, had a chance to play. It was always, too, I could never get a copy for a reasonable price. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it was it was hard to find. Yeah. Um, I, I think that, uh, that's a good question. I think that, in general, we would, we would want to say that the more participatory it is, the more fun you have by, by vicariously, proxy? or yeah, by proxy or vicariously, mm-hmm. and so that's that's kind of that's kind of cool. We we do try to give some windows into the AI, and to enable certain mechanics like counterplay. You mm-hmm. know, so in, in XCOM, the 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 berserker, the mutant berserker, is very he react whenever you whenever anybody does damage to him, he runs towards that character. That's a very easy to figure out AI pattern, and it makes player, players feel smart when they exploit it, which mm-hmm. they are intended to do because he's a really tough enemy. And if he gets close to you, then you're in trouble. So figuring out how to bounce him between enemy between your your soldiers so that he never gets close to any of them is mm-hmm. is, is is a is a fun, is fun. Um, and that's that's enabled by a window into the AI. It's, we just make it really obvious what his priority list is, which okay. is I want to go after things that damage me, mm. um, and. Um, and I think in Civ, there are definitely other windows. There are definitely other similar kinds of windows, uh, 
you know, so uh, we, we just announced uh, at, at PAX East, we just announced uh, Civilization Beyond Earth, which is our spiritual successor to uh, Sid Meier's Alpha Centauri. Mm-hmm, right. And in, in Alpha Centauri, the, the, the civilizations, the factions, were all organized around these ideologies. And so right. you could, looking at these ideologies, you could have a pretty good idea of what they were doing. And what they wanted to do, mm-hmm. you know, if you started near the Spartan faction, you were pretty sure that there was going to be some fighting pretty soon, right? And so, and if you were the peacekeepers, you were pretty sure that it was even more likely because they were likely you were they were your opposed ideology. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I think giving giving windows into the AI is, is fun, but if we were to create a game where you have a lot of influence over what the other actors do. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's that, that's that, that, I'll have to think about that one. That mm-hmm. one's that one's that one's kind of an imponderable to me because it's so different from what we would normally do. Mm-hmm. Well, tell me about this. So um, you were talking about the you know games creating um, uh, you know the, uh, electronic games not being very tolerant and electronic gamers not being very tolerant of, of abstraction. Let's talk a little bit about the Shenandoah games. Do you think that? There is something about the abstraction in the Shenandoah games that works because it, they're on this mobile device where we're not expecting the same thing as what we're expecting when we're sitting at a, at a keyboard. Does that mean that they couldn't work on a PC? The Shenandoah games. So, uh, but Battle of the Bulge, um, uh, Drive on Moscow, and their upcoming Desert Fox. Or have you not played those? I, I own Drive on Moscow, but I haven't had a chance to play it yet. Okay. So it's hard um, for me to say. Okay. I mean, I will. I will say that. Um, you know, so the, the big phenom game right now, Hearthstone, which yes. uh, my coworkers play hmm. uh, incessantly. My son, my son was scared of it, and then I found him on a Saturday morning saying, "Oh, as soon as I get my crocolisk out, <laughs> you know." Um, uh, they 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 talk a lot about the fact that they are a card game, and yet their game could not work physically, right? Because the cards have mechanics that are only possible in a computer game. And yet they have chosen completely an aesthetic that is completely card-based. So right. I've played the game quite a bit, but explain to me exactly, you mean they would be too cumbersome to represent? or No, they've talked about mechanics that are literally impossible to represent. Um, so I, I'm not a huge Hearthstone fan myself, so mm-hmm. I haven't, uh, I haven't, you know, I, I don't, ha- I, I don't have command of that at my fingertips. But for mm-hmm. example, uh, there's one card that just imposes a timer on on, on the moves. Oh, I see. Right. Um, there are cards that sort of summon other cards that are unique to those cards. Right. Like mm-hmm. uh, one of the centerpiece cards of one of my coworkers' decks is Tyrion Fordring, who uh, who has a divine shield on him. But when he dies, he summons an Ashbringer, which is a weapon that you get, which is a different type of card. So, I mean, I guess that's not literally impossible because yeah, you, you could, could do it. You yeah. could, you could do it. But, um, but yeah, the 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 you know because in an interview, the designer of Hearthstone was asked, "Hey, are you ever going to do a physical version of Hearthstone?" He said, "No, uh, we, we designed it to have the physical feel and experience. You know, insofar as you can have a, you know, a visual experience that's physical, but you know, it, it has." The, the, all, all the audio and all the, the mouse interactions and so forth feel like you're playing cards, and yet the game can't, in his opinion, make the make a translation into physical into physical space, mm-hmm. and um, and so uh, that game. Well, I mean, 
haven't played the Shenandoah games, but it wouldn't surprise me if there are things in there that would not survive a port down mm-hmm. to cardboard. And oh, I'm not talking about cardboard. I'm sorry. I'm talking about um, I'm talking about actually the the iPad versus the PC. Is there some kind of something on the PC when you sit down with a mouse and a keyboard? Oh, is there oh, something yes. that you're expecting there? Um, <laughs> tooltips. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I mean, I, I I say that and laugh, but but one of the biggest advantages of PC is that tooltips are easy. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, not necessarily to implement, but they're easy for players to understand them, and there you can do a lot with tooltips. Uh, I mean, you guys have both experienced Crusader Kings. You both know of Crusader Kings' uh, epic tooltips. Oh, yeah. Um, yep. It's hard to imagine that making a good translation onto a tablet. Uh, that's a good example of something that doesn't quite translate. Um, you know, there are games on the tablets that do have tooltip-like UIs, you know, where you can tap you can tap a square that says, put me in tooltip mode, and then I tap something else, and it creates a, a secondary window or... Uh, Hero Academy had a had just had a help button that you could hit, and as long as you held your finger on it, then it would show tooltip style presentations for everything that was currently on the board, uh, as well as for the whole HUD. And so the the ten, you know, so certainly the tablet designers see the value of tooltips, especially in, in more complicated games. But yeah, well, just you know, Bruce to Bruce to your your, your point, um, I, I do feel there is a bit of a difference in what audiences are expecting uh, from tablet games as opposed to PC uh, that makes them a little more tolerant, I think, of certain types of abstraction that maybe they just wouldn't be on PC. Or maybe just PC game designers have not conditioned audiences to accept that abstraction. I think, you know, one of the reasons the iPad comes up so often on the show is because it's become this really interesting, you know, format that... Sort you know is sort of the crossroads of board gaming and traditional electronic gaming, and mm-hmm. you see interesting things coming out of that. I think in most electronic games historically, there's been this very uh, like a very literal approach to game design. Uh, in some ways, what you're talking about earlier with the old the old era of war games, where you took your map, you put the hexes down, then you slam the counters down, boom, you got a game. Mm-hmm. I think you got a bit of that historically in electronic gaming too, where it's like, well, we're gonna, you know, we're modeling the Eastern Front, and we're gonna give you every single brigade, right. that, that sort of thing, and. When people and so that becomes what people expect to see. They, you know, if they're playing a game about empire management on PC, they expect to be looking at a geo, geopolitical map of the world and moving stuff around that map, whether or not really the map is actually where the game is being played. I think Crusader Kings is an interesting example here. You don't actually play that game on the map nearly as much as you play it through uh, your family tree, right? But I think on iPad you don't have any of that baggage and people sort of go to it expecting the sort of uh, the sort of things you find at the crossroads of board gaming and electronic gaming so i think Shenandoah can make their the types of games they do uh, not just cuz they have a really good understanding of the possibilities of that format but also that you don't have an audience that has this really defined idea of look this is how you tell the story of world war 2 uh, operational campaigning in in an electronic format, they're they're kind of free to say nope. Here you know here's a fairly simple here's a fairly simple game. Uh, we're going to you know focus on two or three salient features, and everything that isn't related to that is out the window. And I think on PC, I think there's either 
either there would be resistance from the audience or you don't have many developers pushing that. Uh, but on uh, iPad, immediately people just sort of roll with it. I, I think I think there's something to that for sure. I think that, that the iPad, the, the iPad at least recently has been a platform to take risks like that. However, I think the PC is really bouncing back from that. I think that's largely because of Steam. Um, you know, Steam... The, uh, Gamma Sutra had a headline article the other day pointing out that there have already been more PC games submitted to the Steam store in 2014 thus far, and we're not even halfway through 2014, than there were in all of 2013. Hmm. And so I think it, there's a little bit of, uh, of, of, of bounce back and forth where, where the iPad... And I certainly saw the iPad this way as a as a as as a huge vehicle for sort of niche strategy games, but I think the PC may be becoming that again, um, and we'll see a lot of the development dynamics on the PC that we were seeing on the iPad even as recently as a year or two ago. Hmm. Well, I mean, I I guess the when you say Steam, is it because this because the Steam product is this ephemeral thing? Um, the delivery is cost of delivery is so much lower because I, I feel like there was um, I I don't know if you've uh, ever played Puerto Rico um, but I'm sure you've played Puerto Rico but if you uh, if you think about that game there was a, a, a PC game that came out that was um, basically a really good implementation of that but because it was on the PC and because Puerto Rico is such a simple game it just seemed like this frivolous product just because you got it in a box and you put it in your in your drive and then you install it and then you're like, Oh, this is all it is. And I feel like the game fell apart because, or didn't do well because that was what the, what you expected. Now, if I just click on a button and down, download something from steam, they're like, Oh, well, you know, I, I paid nine ninety nine for this. And if it's, you know, if it's uh it's an abstract kind of interesting strategy game, but it doesn't have a lot of that, um, all the, um, sort of collateral, world construction then um then it's not as big a deal i absolutely think that games like puerto rico um are much are a much easier uh sell on steam where yeah you have this this expectation that on steam it could be anything and if it comes in a box then you have this inherently higher expectation yeah um go on i have one more thing i know that uh, we're we're getting to the sort of wind down time but i i really want to ask you one last question uh, sure. topic about what you think so we had talked about um i think the last time you were here we had just sort of uh just casually mentioned uh, pax britannica oh yes <laughs> and uh, it just got me thinking about that type of game uh and uh and then there's also other games that these you know these big multiplayer games like um uh republic of rome um, and then uh, like Age of Renaissance things. These are games that I don't really see in the electronic. I don't see electronic versions of those games. Is there some reason that you think that is? Oh, yeah, yeah. I think it's because the face-to-face contact brings accountability to the players. Um, if you look at big multiplayer games, then the first question you have to ask is, are they asynchronous? Or meaning, you know, I take my turn, I, I send it off, and then... Mm-hmm you're not immediately taking your turn, you know, and so that they're played over weeks or months, right? Right. As people kind of play whenever they want. But of course, in games like that, you have a huge dropout problem, right? right. Somebody who's losing says, well, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of dragging on my moves. 
right, and the game kind of peters out. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's um, that that can be a big issue with with games like that in the electronic space, especially among players who don't personally know each other, right? If you're using matchmaking, um, and then. So suppose the game is not asynchronous. Suppose everybody kind of logs in at the same time and, and plays. Um, I think there's certainly some technical stuff that that can make that experience weird. Like obviously, if anybody has a bad internet connection, then people are sitting around waiting. Um, if if the game, you know, if if, the, if there's lag, I guess it's, it's probably technical, but also. Um, I think people haven't shifted over to the point where I'm willing to play a turn-based game simultaneously with other people. You know, we um, we have been trying to do that at Firaxis with Civ for a while. I mean, we had Civ play the world, uh, mm-hmm. and that you know, so we we try to mitigate the downtime in Civ. I mean, Civ is a, is is a management game. And so people want to be able to optimize and min-max their 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 game, their 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 cities and their, their their unit positions and so forth. And so marrying that to some kind of simultaneous play in order to keep the game to a reasonable length, you know, we met with some mixed success there. I mean, I think we made some progress, but ultimately that wasn't something that the core player base ultimately hooked onto, right? Mm-hmm. And so um and so we're not going to stop trying, I don't think. But but we also but but I do think that big multiplayer strategy games like PAX or or Empires in Arms or any of those others, mm-hmm. um, I think those will always primarily have their home on the tabletop. Got it. That makes sense. Rob, what do you think? I agree. Excellent. Well, then we're all in agreement. That's a great way to end a show, isn't it? Everybody right. agrees. Very yeah. rare. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thanks for having me back, guys. I love talking to you. Thanks for talking. I, I could I could just talk like this all day. Um, yeah. I just love I love talking about games and uh, that kind of thing. Um, and I'm just I want to reiterate so the way we started the show. I want to reiterate just how excited I am about all the stuff that's coming out. Um, just in all these different formats. Um, I've been working mostly just playtesting uh, Shenandoah's. I, so oh, I've been playtesting Shenandoah's upcoming game ananda you said you have drive on moscow yes so here's your eastern front assignment yes you should try playing drive on moscow just give it a whirl it it's it'll it's not much uh time uh, involvement at all unless it hooks you and then you'll have a lot of time involvement and then um and then you should check out um uh, uh operation barbarossa campaign, campaign. there right. you go it's, there it's on they're added to the list excellent I'd like right, to do folks. a show on them and have you back for a report. Oh, yeah. That would be awesome. The, uh, Ananda's East Front Adventure, the report. <laughs> Sounds good. I'm in. <laughs> All right. Perfect. We need to get you back for a topic on why you can't get into uh, North Africa. Because, honestly, I have the same problem. It's like oh my the World God. War II sector that always just bounces right off you of me. And I don't know why. Crazy. I don't, a, I don't even uh, know why. Oh, it's it's you, you people are objectively crazy. I'm, I think I'm, I think I need wars with really f- stable front lines. I think I need oh, that. I think I need a oh framework that's boring and traditional. Oh my goodness! I think that so I'm I am currently working on an article. It'll take probably forever, but um, uh, I'm working on different ways of representing the Western Desert in board games, and uh, you guys can read it and realize how great the Western Desert really is. <laughs> well, until that day. Uh, This has been Three Moves Ahead. Good night, everybody. Good night. Thanks so much, guys. You too. Good night.